This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Now, Jason, it's week five or six or more, depending on when you started sheltering at home. It's a week where there was talk of a virus resurgence in the fall and winter, a week where markets bounced around on lots of corporate earnings and companies, not surprisingly and increasingly withdrawing their full year guidance. It's also a week where the president actually shifted his tone a little bit, Jason, on reopening. He did indeed. And that was in part a response to this sort of patchwork checkerboard that we're seeing across the United United States governors really trying to make the hard decision about when to reopen their individual economies. We also saw a blockbuster, another blockbuster, and not in a good way, jobless claims report, the market sort of digesting that. In the meantime, we spoke to CEOs, investors, a Nobel laureate indeed, and all of these conversations, we should remind folks, they took place over the course of the week. News is changing fast, so right. keep up to date. If you hear things and you're like, wait, did that actually happen? <laughs> uh, sometimes it changed uh, almost overnight. That's right, Jason. And among the conversations we had this week was with the Box CEO, Chairman, and co-founder, Aaron Levy. It's actually featured in the magazine in BW Talks, and we got his thoughts. He's very concerned, obviously, about the crisis, but he also sees some opportunities for growth in certain sectors. So we caught up with him. We also caught up with the CEO of Headspace. We've been trying to focus our show a lot on the physical and the mental well-being of all of us. I think it's very important yeah. to both you and me. We know it's important to our listeners. Richard Pearson, he co-founded that meditation app, and let's just say it has mainstreamed in a big way. And full disclosure, both you and I love Headspace, the app. It's on our phones and really find it helpful in this situation. And also helpful, no doubt about it, we went back to Nobel laureate Paul Krugman. He, you know, has talked about the economy, the impact on individuals and workers. He also sees that we are in a problem where it's not about specifically low wages, but it's a problem of no wages for workers. And that's why he says stimulus really needs to think about helping out individuals to get our economy back on track. It was a great conversation. That's coming up. First up, though, we go inside the magazine, find out why COVID-19 is so hard to beat. We spoke with Business Week editor Joel Weber and Bloomberg Healthcare reporter Robert Langreth. This virus, this COVID, you know, you know, it's looking increasingly obvious, like it's not going away anytime soon. And we're really going to need to develop custom treatments against this. That, that is being drugs that are specifically designed to target this COVID because the vaccine might take a while. And these antibodies that Regeneron is developing, those are likely to be some of the first uh, custom designed drugs that could come up out against uh, this coronavirus. And Regeneron in particular has been working on antibodies for a lot of diseases for a long time, but they've been, even though they don't sell any drugs for infections now, they've been quietly working on antibodies for various infections for a long time. And they had, uh, right, literally a month or two before uh, the uh, coronavirus happened, they had the most successful trial in the history of uh, Ebola treatment, and that was their antibody cocktail. Uh, Now they're trying to do the same, what they do with Ebola, for the coronavirus, devise antibodies that would block the key spike proteins on the top of the virus and basically neutralize the virus. And you could inject this in and use it either potentially as a treatment for sick patients or kind of as a uh, prophylactic for like high-risk workers like doctors and nurses and people kind of going into the line of fire. How difficult is it, Bob, to get to it? Like, in other words, to get finally an antibody treatment that actually works. We've got lots of folks working on it, but it sounds like that there's a fair amount of failure to be expected along the way. Like anything in drug development, there's absolutely no guarantee it'll work. There could be, you know, side effects that, you know, they don't expect. You know, there's absolutely no guarantee that, you know, that's one reason why there's, there's actually several companies working on it. So Regeneron's one doesn't work out. There's 
AstraZeneca. Uh, there's a company called Zero Biotechnology. Eli Lilly's working on it. So there's like several kind of efforts that are like semi, I guess, semi competing with the other parallel efforts. So there's like several kind of shots and goals, kind of what they call it. Uh, but there is reason to be hopeful that the, the, the antibody treatment, you know, has a, has a, you know, better odds of success uh, than, than some other, you know, treatments. And one reason is it does have this track record. It works against Ebola and some particularly tough viral diseases. And we quote in our story the, head, the former head of the FDA, Scott Gottlieb, saying, you know, if I had to bet on any one drug treatment working out and being able to help, it would be some of these antibody drugs. Because so, the technology has really, you know, increased amazingly in, in speed and specificity over the years. Well, and I, I do wonder about that sort of collaboration and competition and everything that normally happens in this world. How has that changed as you look across this entire industry, Bob? Well, I mean, you know, the different companies, you know, as we look at it, are still, you know, doing different efforts on antibodies and slightly different approaches. So a lot of different companies doing different things. Uh, what's new and what's different is there kind of is more of a spirit of like you know, keeping in touch with the, you yeah. know, what would normally be your competitor and talking to them about, you know, you're doing X and I'm doing Y and like how might we work together and, you know, if we need to work together, you know, we will. Uh, so there, there, there is kind of this feeling that, you know, some companies, you know, may may need to donate kind of manufacturing capacity to whatever turns out to work, you know, and not sit on it. You know, if, that may, if someone else's drug works and, they, and then yours doesn't, you may need to kind of, you know, donate your, your manufacturing capacity to the cause in some way and, you know, not, not be worried by the fact that it's someone else's drug that's the one that turned out to work. And that's the kind of discussions that we're hearing are going on right now. Now, there's, no, there's nothing specific into place because none of these things have, you know, have worked yet, so we don't know. And so for the time being, it's good that, you know, Regeneron has a lot of, and a lot of other companies are, you know, working on similar type drugs. So, we, you know, you just can't predict which of these things is going to work until you test them. That's Bloomberg News healthcare reporter Robert Langreth and Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. This is one of those stories that I think we'll be going back to, Carol, in some ways because it, yes, is a moment in time, but also setting the medical stage is at the core of all of this. Well, and discovering some kind of antibody treatments, it means that we can treat those that already are infected. And until we have a vaccine, it's kind of a short-term prophylactic for those that are at high risk. And so this is how we need to think about it, right, Jason? Because a vaccine is going to take a lot longer than we all have time for to some extent. So we've got to figure out steps along the way so that we can reopen the economy and get back to somewhat of a normal way of living. Whatever normal looks like on the (laughs) other side of this. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Speaking of health, coming up, we hear from a doctor on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. Not just a doctor, but a head of a massive hospital system where the first U.S. case of the virus was confirmed. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show this week about the coronavirus, Carol. So, Jason, we spoke with Dr. Rod Hockman, the president and CEO of Providence Health, and they have been one of the great resources that we have leaned on during the COVID-19 pandemic. And what's interesting, of course, the first U.S. case was confirmed at their hospital system, although as we're learning, maybe some of these cases came earlier. Anyway, he talked to us about where we are in the virus and where we need to be. You know, the, the thing that we had, we were lucky enough, I guess, is we have the first case uh, January 21st in uh, Washington State. And that put us on the alarm because we knew once we had that case, this, this was going to spread. And, of course, we had the Kirkland Nursing Home and then more and more. 
what I think people have to understand, I'm also an immunologist by training. That was mm. my degree. So this, this virus has been out and around, and it's not like it just pops up somewhere. So what we're finding out, a lot of asymptomatic cases, relatively mild cases. So what we really think, it's not like this thing is just kind of spreading from one town to the next. That in a lot of cases, it's there. And then what happens, a group of people get together or it, you know, it breaks out in a nursing home and then you have a flare and it's up. So a lot of us believe a lot of this has been out and around us for a lot longer than we really believe it to be. The good news for us is that we've been at it longer and we stayed pretty, pretty hard on social distancing. So we're really starting to see not all, we're starting to see the real decrease in the number of cases. Things are opening up and actually some of our hospitals are half empty. Uh, because we stopped a lot of elective surgery and whatnot. And we're actually trying to think, how do we turn this back on carefully and what do we do next? So what you're going to see around the rest of the country are these, what people would say are what seem like outbreaks, but they're going to be flares in uh, cases that are there. And it takes a while before you get on top of it. And I'd say in New York, they were a little later on getting on top of it, and particularly in densely populated areas, it, you know, it has a tendency, obviously, to spread a lot easier than it does in less dense settings. So I, I need, to, we want to ask you, you know, Dr. Hockman, you know, what does coming out of this look like? And I know there's a bunch of steps and we'll get into that, but what does coming out of this look like in your view? It's going to look, so like people talk about waves after, you know, what's the second wave look like? I, I think it's more akin to ripples that we're going to see. So we're going to have to live with this virus as long, I, I hate to say it, until we have a vaccine, but I think we can get into a better relationship with it and be able to manage and control it better. Obviously, as more people in the community have been exposed, have some level of immunity, we get better at testing, and then you bring things back. But we're going to have, and we should expect in places like Washington or California or other places, that there'll be these little ripples that occur where there'll be some cases that break out. We've got to, you know, that's where the isolation, getting on top of it early really makes sense. But we'll have that, and we're going to have to live with that, I have to say, through the end of the year. Mm. Now, is it compatible? You know, we live in a real tech community, so Boeing, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, we're all talking about how to get people back to work and be able to do that safely, and we think we can... We can gradually open that up, but we are going to have, we're not going to see the end of the uh, COVID-19, but it'll be a lot more, it'll be easier to control it, easier to, to, to diagnose it. So we were talking about kind of life after the virus, and you said you don't see large groups gathering for a long time. Two questions. What's a long time? And so things like <laughs> sports, concerts, um, kids going to college, uh, you know, pick your thing, commuting, like how do we, you know... What are the events we can do? What are the events we can't? You talked about office settings probably work, but I'd love more specifics you're thinking because it's a really informed sure. thinking. Sure. So I've had a whole bunch of university presidents call me and say, okay, can we get my kids back in September? And if we do, how do we do it? So we had good discussions about that. But I said, when the kids, if you can get the kids back, which I think, I think you can, You'd preferably love to test them before they come back to campus and have as much information knowing that they're healthy coming back. And then, in, in the, you know, you're not going to have a lecture hall with 300 people in it, but you could have smaller classrooms with some spread and probably do learning 
that's a combination of virtual and in-place learning. Uh, so kind of mapping that out and making sure you can do it. So I think there's really some hope for universities because you can manage the population, manage the setting. I think in terms of large gatherings, you know, concerts, a lot of folks that have theaters in Seattle have said, when can we get back to what we're doing? It's just going to be hard to see unless we have a better control on what this looks like, getting 250 or 300 people in the same room. So for sporting events, I kind of think we're all going to learn to love golf a lot. And <laughs> the question is whether you can, yeah. do, you can do some pro sports, maybe without a large crowd, you know, yeah. that's controlled, but at least you can watch it on TV. So that's some of the ways of thinking in terms of that. The good news is, is that every week that goes by, we learn more. So Alaska's really opening up. We're going to start opening up. And I think we'll learn a lot by what happens. So every week or month that goes by, we'll get smarter about it and be able to kind of refine some of those uh, predictions uh, that are out there. But right now, if you ask me, that's, that, that'd be my, my off-the-top quick uh, so wait, analysis. Did you say so? I'm sorry, forgive me. Did you give us a time frame for when we can kind of get back to normal large groups? Is that a year away? Well, I think when, when you're talking large groups, like seeing, you know, in our place, the Seahawks or the Mariners are doing that, I, I got to believe that we're not going to feel comfortable with that till we have a vaccine. Yeah. And then the question on the vaccine, and, you know, there's so much noise out there, I, I kind of laugh when I hear it. You know, there's at least 15 different companies working on vaccines. And part of it's working on, there's some newer vaccine technology that uses messenger RNA that might give us a vaccine faster mm -hmm. than some of the others. You know, but we're going to see how that is because we've got to get better at getting vaccine therapy faster than saying a year, year and a half. So that's what I'm looking towards. That's Dr. Rod Hockman. He's the president and CEO of Providence Health. They're based out there in Everett, Washington. And Jason, they have been a great resource for us in understanding the virus itself, how you treat with it, what are the concerns, and, and why it's going to take us a while to really get our hands around it. Well, and very much on the front lines, and this is a system, as you say, some of the earliest cases that were identified. We did get some news this week, as you alluded to, that the earliest deaths may have happened in California, right. even earlier, weeks before uh, what happened in Washington State. But clearly, the state of Washington, the Seattle area, has set a template. A lot of folks here on the East Coast have learned what they've been doing. He's also said he would love to test everyone before going back to work. And he was the one, remember, who said doesn't expect to see large groups gathering for right. a long time. And that means, you know, those sports outings and you name it, it's not going to happen until we get a vaccine. And he's a Seahawks fan. You're listening <laughs> to Bloomberg Business Week coming up. Another edition of Business Week Talks featuring our conversation with Box CEO Aaron Levy. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations that we had on our daily radio show about the coronavirus this week. And we're bringing you today another edition of Business Week Talks. It's where we sit down with a CEO, a business leader, and really go a little deeper than the typical earnings interview or just sort of drive by what's happening at your company. We get into leadership and we get into, in this case, crisis management. This time around, we spoke with Aaron Levy. He's the CEO and co-founder of Box. So we've, um, you know, we've uh, been very, very focused as a company um, with our 2,000 employees on obviously first the, the health and safety of all of our employees, uh, but, but, uh, but secondarily making sure that we 
um, really help support our customers during this time. So our, our platform is used by about 100,000 businesses globally, including 70% of the Fortune 500, um, really to, to help them uh, be able to securely access and share their data from anywhere. And so any company that is, um, uh, you know, right now in a work, work from home or remote work environment um, obviously needs secure access to their data and their information. Um, and our platform is uh, is there to help them with that. So um, so we're, right now we're just 100% focused on our customers, making sure that they can get the most out of our technology right now while they're in this new way of of working from a, uh, a work-from-home environment. What have you learned as you've talked to, you know, sort of folks on, on the front lines, as it were, of trying to stand up their companies in, in a different way? Yeah, I mean, this is this is certainly probably one of the most radical shifts uh, in technology and, and business operations in history. Um, the, you know, the first is obviously the technology front. So being able to run your company uh, almost completely in the cloud where you have to have modern technologies, whether that's Zoom or WebEx or Microsoft Teams or Slack, uh, from a video conferencing and a chat standpoint, or being able to get access to your data from applications and, and platforms like Box. So some companies were already way ahead of the curve. They've been investing these, in these technologies for three or five or 10 years. Um, and other companies have had, obviously had to scramble much more rapidly, um, and in some cases in a much more disruptive way, to be able to respond to this. So the first is the big technology transformation I think most companies are experiencing. Um, and then as soon as companies started to settle into this remote work and work-from-home environment, um, really, the next shift has been actually how we work. And um, and this is probably going to be the most profound yeah. part of the, the, the transformation, which is um, how we're collaborating, what hours we're doing work, how we move our, our, uh, our businesses and, and projects forward. So we are seeing some pretty significant changes in the underlying ways that people are working. So we're, we're seeing that, that the days are actually longer in terms of work is getting done more in off hours from our customers. We're seeing that people are using more technology to be able to do their jobs. So obviously we've shifted to, to you know, much more virtual ways of working. And we're seeing an increase in collaboration amongst industries. So um, in businesses like media or life sciences or healthcare or education, massive increases in the amount of collaboration and data sharing that's happening in those markets. So um, so the, you know, the, uh, certainly there's going to be a lot of businesses and business models that are under pressure right now. Um, but for those that aren't or for those that are, are responding to this event, um, we're seeing um, still significant levels of in a lot of these industries. So, you know, it's interesting. I'm listening to what you're talking about. And Jason and I have been asking a lot of CEOs uh, of various companies from different industries about what's what's kind of the longer-term impact of the virus. Right. How does how does it change our world? So when we emerge, you know, from this immediate crisis, what's the most important, and in your view, underappreciated way that the world will be different? And at least from your yeah, area think, of expertise, yeah. Yeah, no, great, great question. I mean, I think, I think there's so many things that we've, um, just taken for granted in terms of how we do our work um, that, you know, we go into the office, we go into a meeting, we, you know, take a couple hours, we, we get teams together, we maybe take a while to make a decision. We don't necessarily bring in all the voices from around our company to make that decision. It, it happens to be whoever, whoever could attend the meeting, you know, you know, physically in a lot of cases, um, or we, we go and we spend three days on an on a, uh, international trip to do one or two meetings uh, in a different country. Um, I think what we're going to start to see is, is, you know, how productive we can be with technology and how much more connected we can actually be with technology. Um, uh, in the past couple of weeks, I've, I've spent probably five times the amount of time I, I have historically with international colleagues um, and even international customers. And that's because it's just so much easier where the expectation is that we're going to be much more communicative and we're going to be able to collaborate much more efficiently now. So I think you're actually going to see in a very odd way 
because of social distancing and increase in the level of connection that, that teams have and the connection you have with your customers and the amount of collaboration that you're doing on a global basis. Um, and there'll be a lot of positives um, uh, to that. I think you're going to see all new businesses emerge. You're going to see all new types of players um, be able to get customers that previously wouldn't have been able to, to serve um, on a global basis. And of course, at the same time, we're going to see real, real and severe impact. Uh, obviously, the local economy um, you know, being right at the center of that. And that's Box CEO Aaron Levy, a young guy, but he has seen some things for sure. And this is a company, Carol, that is very much on the front lines in sort of a different way as we have shifted so much of our lives remote. We are leaning heavily on the cloud. And I love what he said. A leadership lesson is, you know, sometimes you have to learn to pivot. You have to be decisive, but you've got to change to adapt to the situation. And that is certainly something all leaders are learning right now amid the virus. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we hear from Jason Flom, the founder and CEO of Lava Records, someone who has done so much in the music industry. He still is, but he's also helping those wrongly incarcerated. He is an incredible guy. This was a wide-ranging conversation, to say the least. You're going to want to tune in. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important and we hope informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show about the coronavirus, its impact, and how different industries and different leaders are dealing with it. Jason, we had the opportunity to catch up with Jason Flom. He's the founder and CEO of Lava Records. He has been in the music industry for a long, long time. We talked with him about what the industry will look like after the virus because everything's had to shut down, slow down uh, because of the virus. We also talked with him about the work he has done on helping those wrongfully incarcerated. He's created an organization. He's also got a podcast. So, so much to talk about. We also talked with him about our respective daughters. His an author, (laughs) mine a reader. I am broadcasting from my daughter's bedroom here in Sleepy Hollow, New York. And so I have at hand her favorite book, which, and I'm not kidding you, is Lulu as a Rhinoceros. So we have- Oh my God, I'm I'm about to melt into a puddle of tears here, but keep going. We have, so she's two, and now every dog that looks like Lulu is Lulu uh, when we go out on walks and things like that. And she basically, even at two, can like point out every sort of turn in the book. So anyway, thank you. As a, as a father, thank you for writing uh, that book. It's really, it's a very sweet tale. And it's been, uh, it's been just a, a wonderful addition to our library. Oh, that makes me so happy. I'm really glad she likes it. I'm glad you guys are having a, a good experience with it. So it, yes. it, was, it was a labor of love. Yes, it, it so, appears yeah. so. And 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 you you wrote it with your daughter. Do it. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote it with my daughter. Now you're reading it to your daughter. So it's really a beautiful thing. Um, yeah, I wrote it with my daughter just because my my you know I, I do a lot of work with. Well, I'm on the board of this organization called VetPaw, which is Veterans Empowered to Protect African Wildlife, and so their mission. It's U.S. military veterans who are on the ground in South Africa, uh, arresting poachers, breaking up poaching rings, and saving rhinos and elephants. And um, you know, I came back from a trip there and, and got to spend time up close and personal with rhinos. And I was sitting on the couch with my dog, Lulu, and telling her about my trip. And she looked me right in the eye and said, well, I'm a rhinoceros too. And I was <laughs> like, what are, you, what are you talking about? You're obviously a dog. You're small and furry. You're on my couch. And she said, can't you see I have short legs, a big body, and a flat head? I only run fast for short distances, and I'm clumsy, and I burp and snore and fart like a rhino. I'm a rhino. So I thought, let's tell the story. And if we could create a hero for kids who feel left out, put down, or bullied, 
because the way they look, the way they feel, or the way they are, let's do that. And so I enlisted the help of my daughter, um, and she's a real writer, and uh, she's a member of the LGBTQ community as well. So it it just it came out, it, you know, whatever we did it, and it came out better than I could have expected. And now it's a hit book, and I hope everyone goes and gets it. It's called Lulu is a Rhinoceros. It's terrific. I I can tell you. It's got great pictures and a very, as you say, sort of a a really nice message to it. Um, And in any case, uh, well, it's just one of the many things that you've done. I mean, let's talk about the music industry if we can. Everything has been disrupted, but people are maybe not making music right now in the exact same ways. What does it look like on the ground? I mean, how is the music industry affected here? Oh, my God. It's a you know, upheaval, like, I guess, almost every industry, right? Because of the fact that there's no concerts. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is a very, you know, look, the whole world, it's hard to imagine that five or six weeks ago, we would have been having a conversation about where to go for dinner. Right. You know, now it's a question, you want to have dinner in the kitchen or the dining room, you know, if Amazing. you have a dining room or whatever, um, or in front of the TV. Um, but yeah, so the music industry is completely uh, upended. They're saying that concerts could be as much as 18 months away before we see a return to some sort of normalcy. It's obviously going to be gradual. Um, people are consuming music, for sure. Um, they're consuming it in different ways, not in their commute to work, but at home. Uh, they're diving into their catalogs. We're seeing a trend towards rock and um, a little bit, you know, a slight decline in hip-hop and pop and more people listening to rock, people listening to music that makes them feel good and comfortable. Pulling, you know, catalog is up, um, not surprisingly, I guess, as people are home and they have time to, you know, and they're looking for something that feels, I think, you know, comfortable and familiar and good. So delighted that we have Jason Flom with him, founder and CEO of Lava Records. He's also a founding board member of the Innocence Project, host of the hit podcast, Wrongful Conviction. Um, Jason, tell us, remind everybody about the work you're doing with the Innocence Project and, and your podcast, where you really get to and have these incredible conversations with people who are wrongfully incarcerated. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, you know, I started this podcast a few years ago. I guess my timing was good um, because so the people, the exonerees, I've gotten to know hundreds of exonerees over the years of working with the Innocence Project since the uh, mid-90s, early 90s. And uh, they're the most extraordinary people that you can ever meet because they've literally been to hell and they've come back and out and, and with, with, with grace, with courage, with optimism, and, you know, what we're, we're focusing on now, you know, with this Wrongful Conviction series, we're doing a special edition. Each week, sorry, we'll go backtrack. Each week on the show, we tell an individual story of a person who was wrongfully convicted, sentenced to death, uh, sentenced to life in prison, served decades for crimes they didn't commit. So it's, it's tragedy and triumph in every episode. And now we're doing a special edition, Wrongful Conviction in the Time of COVID, where we have these extraordinary um, people who've survived, Damien Eccles, Amanda Knox, and others, talking about you know, the lessons they learned from this extreme isolation uh, and hardship and how those might apply to people who are suffering now mm-hmm. in their own sort of, you know, with the walls closing in, you know? And so what do you take away? I mean, what's the lesson for the rest of us? Obviously, none of us are very, very few of us are enduring what those folks did. But as you say, there are lessons in there for how to cope with a world that's dramatically changed. And maybe most importantly, a a world that many people are experiencing, maybe for the first time, this world of isolation. What, What have you drawn from them? Well, that's, I'm glad you asked. And, and again, the podcast is Wrongful Conviction, but the, 
you know, what they've taught me in these episodes, we've two out already, um, Damien Eccles and Amanda Knox uh, episodes are out, and they talk about the importance of, you know, body work, you know, exercise, yoga. They talk about reading, the importance of, of keeping your mind engaged. I learned from Nick Yaris, whose episode comes out next week, who was on death row for 22 years. You know, he said to me, I've never heard it this way, but he said, you know, we read 200 books worth of words each year, but we don't read books, uh, yeah. uh, generally speaking, right? And he said, there's so many wonderful books you can read, and that's what got him through and, and turned him around in prison, was reading some of the great books. So Damien Eccles, you know, who's, again, who survived 18 years on death row in Arkansas, he talks about keeping a sense of humor through all of this. And he even talks about some, some moments that he found a reason to smile on death row, which sounds insane, but it's not when you hear him tell it. You know, one of the things that we wanted to ask you, because we've been doing the stories, um, Jason, uh, not the stories, it's reality, of the prisons and the prisoners, you know, with amid the, co- the COVID-19 outbreak and the, you know, we're seeing high levels of outbreak at these prisons and so on. You know, I'm just curious if you've been talking with folks, you know, on the inside and what you're hearing about, you know, how they're dealing with this. I, I have been and, you know, it's- it's it's really it's an impossible nightmare to even for those of us out here to even try to understand i mean there is no such thing as social distancing in prison mm. a lot of the prisons in america are dorm style environments where the people are are right next to each other right on top of each other in bunks um there are there are cells that have multiple people in them of course our local jails have crowded you know tiny cells where everyone's sharing one toilet and people are sharing, you know, everything. I mean, in Sing Sing recently, the first guy that died at Sing Sing was a guy who was in the law library every day using the typewriter. So everyone else that used the typewriter is compromised. And let's not forget that, it, you know, the guards are suffering as well. Right. Right. And this is something we and, and, and then on top of that, we have to talk about the fact that there's 11, there are 11 million people going in and out of our jails and prisons every year. And so we cannot control this virus in a free environment, in in free society, if we don't decarcerate. Because with that much churn going back and forth, and with all the people, all the civilians, besides the guards that go in and out of the prisons every day, the, you know, religious uh, uh, people, the, um, you know, the pastors or whatever you might have, uh, people who are different kind of workers that go in and out, you know, they all go back to the community and they bring it in with them or they bring it out with them. It's, it's a nightmare. So I think now is the moment for us all to take a hard, hard look and take bold, decisive action to decarcerate and to, you know, end this national nightmare, this disastrous failed social policy of mass incarceration. There's no reason for it. That's Jason Flom, the founder and CEO of Lava Records. He's also a founding board member of the Innocence Project. He's host of the hit podcast, Wrongful Conviction. He, what really struck with me, I got to say, Jason, is his reminding us that we've got to end that policy of mass incarceration. Just talking about the prison community, how they too are really unfairly and disproportionately being impacted by the virus. Yeah, I was really looking forward to this because in addition to him writing Lulu, 
is a rhinoceros. You <laughs> had talked so much about him and the conversation yeah. you had, and really uh, a deep conversation uh, in a lot of ways toward the end of our show one day really stuck with me uh, afterwards. Well, that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Plenty coming up in our next hour, including a conversation with the CEO of the Pittsburgh International Airport, Christina Kosotis. A fascinating conversation about, obviously, their air traffic is way down and her thoughts on what life looks like after the virus when it comes to the airport and airline communities. Plus, take a deep breath. We caught up with the CEO and the co-founder of the wellness app, Headspace. He put a lot of this in perspective, talked about his business and how it's really become mainstream, plus the man himself, Carol Paul Krugman. Yeah, he argues that the next round of stimulus, we've got to think about those states and cities. It's crucial to getting the economy back on track. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Today, we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative and helpful conversations we had on our Bloomberg Business Week daily radio show about the coronavirus, its impact, and insights from leaders, executives, and big thinkers. All of it happening in real time as news continued to cross the Bloomberg terminal. Jason, we're going to hear from the CEO of Pittsburgh International Airport, Christina Kosotis. It was named one of the world's most innovative companies this year by Fast Company. We're also going to hear from Richard Pearson. He's the CEO of the wellness app Headspace. You and I both use it. Full disclosure, it was cool to catch up with him. And then Nobel laureate Paul Krugman. All right. First up, we take you inside the magazine. Look at how America needs real-time data to get through this health crisis. We spoke to Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber and Bloomberg News senior trade reporter Sean Donnan on his story in the magazine this week. You look out there and we look at this great big economy that we've got and you're trying to reach for some data to show you what's happening in there. And the reality is, you look at the normal economic data that we rely on, the non-farm payrolls, the inflation data, all of that stuff, and it's just not telling us what we need to know right now because this thing's just moving too fast. And that tells us something bigger. Here we have, you know, ostensibly the biggest economic crisis of our lifetime, and yet the data we rely on to measure the economy isn't keeping up. Well, it's what, time for something new. I love this line in your story. Peering into our future might be easier if we knew with certainty what happened in our immediate past. Yeah. I mean, to get an idea, this is what Jason and I talk about so much, and I'm assuming, you know, Joel and your team, it's like, what does life look like post-COVID-19? But unless we can kind of trust the data that we're dealing with now, we really don't know, right, Sean? And we don't have the data yet on, on, on our immediate past, a lot of our immediate past. That first quarter GDP, those three months to March, the first reading we're going to get of that is April 29th. Mm. The data, you know, the one that we really care about, that the second quarter that we're in now, where most economists agree the big downturn is happening, we're not going to get that until the end of July. All right. So this is such a great read in part because there are some history lessons uh, in here, some callbacks the McNamara fallacy. Tell us about that, Sean. Right. So there was this grim bit of data that uh, the American military operated uh, and really planned the war around uh, in Vietnam for, for years, and that was body count. Literally, from the ground on up, they were reporting the number of enemy combatants killed uh, on a daily basis. And commanders back uh, in Washington were using that to assess how the war was going. The problem was is that you got some really perverse and incentives in the system there where uh, commanders on the ground whose careers depended on this data were inflating the data 
and reporting that back up uh, all the way to Robert McNamara, uh, who was then leading the war effort uh, in the Kennedy administration. And um, he was looking at these daily body counts, thinking the war was going great uh, for years, that the U.S. was winning, when in fact it was losing quite heavily on the ground. The McNamara fallacy is what came out of that, and that is what happens when policymakers in particular, but it could be investors, uh, quants, it it can be uh, uh, politicians, business leaders, CEOs, when they have their nose in the data and they ignore what is going on in the world around them. And that leads to just some really bad choices and, and some big mistakes. And so that's, you know, that's the downside of data. Right now, we don't have the data we need. At the same time, we can all look out into the world and know that things are not going well. So do we need to think yeah. like – oh, go ahead, Joel, please. Well, it, it, I was just going to say, you know, like there is, we're not totally driving blind here in that there are places that, the, you know, the Federal Reserve – and the GDP now index, Sean, is one way that we have attempted, that, that economics has attempted to kind of put its pulse on the now. Yeah, uh, but so, even that has its limitations. Right. So, so what, we're, what we're starting to do now, and you're seeing it in, in a lot of the alternative uh, pieces of data that we're all looking at. Uh, people were looking at open table bookings there for a while uh, at the beginning of this crisis, just that collapse uh, in, in reservations through that booking app uh, reservations at restaurants that, that happened in cities as the shutdown orders went through. Uh, we've been looking at TSA security clearance oh. data to show the number of air travelers. We're looking at uh, traffic data, electricity usage data, all of that stuff. But all of that is, is kind of partial. It's not necessarily reliable. And while the Federal Reserve and a number of the regional feds have put together uh, these efforts to try and measure short-term GDP, and the Atlanta Fed does this, uh, the New York Fed has, has played with this, the Philly Fed has played with it as well, um, none of those things are really reliable enough uh, to count on yet. So we need that data, we're looking for that high-frequency data, but we don't yet have that magic data that we need. What makes me nervous is not having that magic data is that here we have policymakers trying to figure out what's the right steps to take. We're going to be talking with Paul Krugman and get his take on this um, a little bit later on our, our broadcast, but I do wonder, Sean, like, if we don't have that magic data, might we be taking the wrong policy steps right now that will hurt us later on? That's absolutely the risk. Uh, we really don't yet know where the damage is in this economy, the U.S. economy, right now, and that means you can't necessarily target the policy response uh, to the right areas, and that's something uh, that we're going to be adjusting or that policymakers are going to be adjusting uh, or in dealing with a lot in the months to come. And that's Sean Donnan, Bloomberg News senior trade reporter, and Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine. I love me some Sean Donnan just because he is so smart about blending the data side, but also the anecdotal side, weaving it all together because, yes, the numbers tell you a certain amount, but also the implications of those numbers, they're massive, Carol. A timely story, right? And in a week where we had, what, 26.5 million jobs vanishing in five weeks because of the lockdown, the latest data showing that. You know, our country has put faith in statistics, but the numbers, as Sean writes and reports, may be failing us this time. And it's really important because we've got to get the right policy to get the economy back on track. You're listening to Bloomberg This Week. Coming up, economist, New York Times columnist and Nobel laureate Paul Krugman. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week 
with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations that we had throughout the week on our daily radio show all about the virus, Jason, increasingly about how do we treat it and increasingly also what does life look like after the virus. Right. And we caught up with Nobel laureate Paul Krugman. This is someone who just a few weeks ago was in our studio talking about his new book. It was a very different world. This virus... It was on the horizon, but no one, no one, no one really anticipated what was going to happen. His writing, as always, has been incredibly sharp about this, and we dug into some very serious issues. I'm curious, as you have watched policies unfold from the government, are they the right ones and what's needed to kind of maintain the economy as much as they can right now and help us when we get on the other side? Okay, the, this, this program that just got some additional funding, uh, so far it has not worked particularly well. A lot of the money has gone to businesses that don't need it. But, I, you know, that doesn't worry. That, that's actually, in some ways, the least bad part of what's happening. Um, the two things that worry me uh, a lot are, uh, still, we have had no significant relief for state and local governments. Mm-hmm. And those governments have to balance their budgets, and they're on the front lines. And uh, it's going to, even in pure economic terms, they're going to be forced into austerity measures that are going to extend this slump long after the virus has let up. Um, and the other thing is unemployment benefits. Um, we have a, on paper, we have a, a really good plan that gets people a lot of, of compensation, but it's being run through state unemployment offices, which have been totally overwhelmed. So the last number I saw was in Florida, uh, you know, only one person in eight who has been approved for unemployment has actually, benefits has actually received any money. So, um, so we're falling down enormously on the implementation of the unemployment benefits. So if you take it all together, uh, what we have is, you know, we've had kind of the right ideas in how to deal with this, but we've fallen down enormously. The, the money is just not flowing on a sufficient scale to deal with the, the magnitude of this catastrophe. And Paul, when it comes to execution, it, it feels like one of the raging debates that seems like we're we're having uh maybe unwittingly or maybe very wittingly is between the power of the federal government the responsibility of the federal government and the responsibility and the role of state and and local governments how did we get here and where do you think it goes from here in terms of that breakdown well you know we have a federal system which does sometimes cause problems. I mean, in you know, Britain, there's no question. There's, there's a government, and, and I mean, there are local authorities, but effectively it's, it's centralized. Uh, but um, we have relied way too much uh, on state and local initiative um, um, in situations where they just don't have the resources. So I, I, I've been looking on, on the unemployment front. I've been looking at Canada, which also has a federal system with very strong provinces, but they have an unemployment benefit scheme, which is not too different from ours, except the federal government set up a, a, a portal and a hotline, and people in Canada are getting their emergency unemployment benefits within days, whereas we are still you know, immensely backlogged. Uh, so uh, why, I think it's, it, you, could, you can understand the political history that got us to this point, but this is a point where we really should have a take-charge federal government in terms of of, of getting that money to the people who need it, and we don't. Well, and Paul, you mentioned this at, at the outset. You know, part of the execution has been that the money may not be going to the right places, and and it calls to mind something I know you've been looking at, and certainly we've been talking about, which is the inequalities that are really being exposed. Many inequalities, candidly, that you've been writing about for years and years by this 
crisis, you know, you think about the restaurant industry, you think about frontline workers, you think about the fact that folks like us, candidly, we have the ability to do our jobs from home. There are many who don't. What do we need to do? What can we do in the short term to try and alleviate some of that huge structural problem? Well, again, I think the the interesting thing about this one is that this is, uh, for once, it's not a problem of low wages. It's a problem of no wages. We're having a problem where people are just losing jobs, and uh, we're probably, uh, it's going to be probably 25 million or more jobs at least lost. Um, And we can rush aid. Now, the the CARES Act, that big $2 trillion bill, did uh, not only enhance unemployment benefits, but expanded the scope. Uh, which is the right thing to do. The trouble is, as far as I can tell, almost nobody has received those benefits yet. I mean, they expanded it to gig workers, uh, contractors, self-employed, uh, but but the state offices uh, can't even deal with the backlog of conventional unemployment insurance claims. So that's what we what we really need is is we need to be getting income out to lots of people. I will say that that is um, this is a a, a case where. It, it's not hard to determine who who needs aid. You know, right. Sometimes you, you can worry about if this is administratively complicated. It's not now. It's really a, uh, and particularly since since it's such an emergency. Uh, if a few if a few undeserving people get some money, who cares? Uh, Exa- the important point is is the tens of millions of people who are suffering. Uh, so, uh, but and we we should take lessons. I mean, this will, this is not going to be the last crisis we face. I am curious what your perspective is, too. Like, we have a headline crossing. United Airlines said to offer shares uh, $25.95 to $26.50, and they're offering up over 39 million shares. I mean, they're looking to raise money. We get it. What is the balance between helping big companies, as well as small companies, but big companies in particular, who do employ thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of workers uh, around the country, what's, what's the balance between helping them out which is kind of big bailouts, you know, versus helping, you know, individuals. What is, what is the, how do you see it from an economic point of view? What's the balance about what we need to do, or do we need to be all in on all of it? Well, we need to be all in with the caveat that we shouldn't be in the business of rescuing um, stockholders particularly. I mean, if this is uh, um, the uh, famous Mitt Romney, corporations are people, my friend. Right. What, he, what he actually meant was that they employ people, and their employees are absolutely, just because someone happens to work for a big company doesn't mean that they're less deserving of help than someone who's uh, working for a small company. Uh, but uh, but we want that to be bailouts that that uh, where the taxpayers uh, aren't, aren't bailing out wealthy individuals who, who are who are in a, you know stockholders and that's economist Paul Krugman we were looking forward to this as anyone would he's so smart and on point not shy Carol and really <laughs> no. assessing the way that this response has been handled so far and maybe what we need going forward especially when it comes to employment and what I love about him, you know, he's City University of New York, professor of economics, but he's written several books, many books, I think over 30. His latest book is called Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future. And what we love about him, Jason, is he does bring in everything, economics, politics. He looks at the world with a really big perspective and tries to figure out, okay, what's best for everybody moving forward. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, the CEO of Pittsburgh International Airport. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 
You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show, all about the virus. That's all anyone is really talking about. We are trying to bring you some holistic conversations looking at this story from lots of different angles. One of the industries, of course, impacted severely by the virus is the airline industry. And of course, that includes airports. And for a view on that, we caught up with Christina Kosotis. She's the CEO of Pittsburgh International Airport, named one of the world's most innovative companies this year by Fast Company. Passengers are way down. All of our numbers are way down. Whether we look at TSA boardings, baggage, concession sales, uh, taxi or Uber Lyft transactions, parking revenue, all of that is down by 90, 95, 97%. But what is, I know, like shocking, right? It's just, it's empty in our terminals and our parking lots everywhere. But what is going on is that we have two military bases here the Air National Guard and the uh, the Pennsylvania National Guard, uh, Air Force uh, Reserve, excuse me, and the Pennsylvania National Guard. We've got cargo flights uh, with a whole lot of e-commerce going on, cargo flights in and out, and we do have passengers. There may be only 400 a day instead of 14,000, but we do have passengers and crews going through and a whole lot of frontline staff, 217 a day, keeping this place running. We're talking with Christina Crisotis. She's CEO of Pittsburgh International Airport. So, Christina, so, okay, so you have activity going on. You're hearing Mm -hmm. about people in different cities talking about reopening. I mean, what does that look like in your view? What it looks like is that there will be a whole lot of businesses that are closed today that will reopen. We never closed. And so what it looks like to us is that more of the same. Until people feel comfortable traveling again, we don't expect to see a dramatic increase in the number of folks coming through the airport. So the the industry, I was just listening to some of the um, reports that you were issuing about what's happening with the airlines and stocks and earnings and outlooks. And it's, you know, it's a tough time right now for the entire travel ecosystem. So I think that we're going to be coming back slowly, whether things are formally reopened or just um, doing what they're doing today. So, Christina, let's talk about the airlines, because obviously they're a critical part of your ecosystem Mm -hmm. uh, there. Mm -hmm. An airport doesn't really work unless you have airplanes coming in and out. What can you or should you be doing for them and and vice versa so that you all can sort of survive on the other side of this? Well, I think that the vice versa is critical. So we can't exist without them, and I promise they can't exist without us. Right. Mm-hmm. So, right, well, sometimes, you know, that's that's not something that everybody remembers. But right now, what we're doing is we have offered our airfield to park planes, right? This is a big deal as, you're, as you've got to put a fleet down on the ground. You've got to find places where you can park it safely and securely. And we have a maintenance base here. Uh, American Airlines has a maintenance base here at Pittsburgh International. So we had seen up to 100 aircraft parked out on our airfield at one time. And that's one of the ways that we're making a difference. Uh, the other is, is that we're working closely with our airline partners to make sure that we are consolidating our operations on as few concourses as possible so we can shut down the others, saving on utility costs, uh, letting them know what we're doing in order to reduce costs uh, as they go through their 
balance sheets and look at, you know, uh, O&M costs, et cetera, we're doing the same. So it's really, that's what we're doing in the short term. And in the long term, I think we've got to work together to figure out how do we restore confidence in the industry as a whole. That's what I wanted to ask you, because Fast Company, one of the reasons they named you as being so innovative, the airport, is you guys have figured out how to make travel easier for people with disabilities. And whether it's a blind traveler or some other uh, disability. So what what does that look like when you think about how innovation might impact uh, airports and travel so that it can make it safer and more secure and, and, and bring back more people? What does that involve? What kind of innovation might we see? What kind of technology might be involved uh, to make that happen? So we're going to be, we have a couple of things that we're working on and we'll actually be coming out with publicly within the next week or two with some robotics companies here in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is the center for robotics and artificial intelligence really globally. Mm-hmm. And we're really lucky to have some world leading companies Carnegie here. Carnegie Mellon, w- yeah. Yeah, yeah. And spinoffs from Carnegie Mellon and companies that have Carnegie in the name. So we have been working with them really for the last couple of weeks to look at ways that we can boost uh, confidence in the industry, and, and that's what's coming out soon. I don't want to talk about it yet, but it, we're very focused on this, looking at uh, what we can do as an airport, but also in order to aid the airlines as part of that from our facility uh, and how that might be able to be applied to the ecosystem globally. And that's Christina Casota. She's the CEO of Pittsburgh International Airport. You know, I love that we caught up with a regional airport. They've got a lot of activity. They still have some some business going on, right, moving around um, some of the cargo planes. But, of course, business is way down. But um, really interesting to see what she thinks life will be like at airports once we get through the virus. Yeah, she was really a straight talker, which I mm-hmm. appreciated. And she's clearly working it. We're looking forward to catching up with her in the not-too-distant future because she's got some things going on with some of her local partners that really could change the game. And you wonder if those sorts of things will be implemented at airports around the world. You're listening to Bloomberg BizWeek coming up, how to keep your mind at ease or at least trying to during this period of isolation. We're going to hear from the CEO of a well-known wellness app, Headspace. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had throughout the week on our daily radio show. Of course, all of it, Jason, dealing with the virus, covering so many different industries. And one of them included something that we were really looking forward to all week. This is something that you and I both use, full Mm -hmm. disclosure. It's Headspace, well known to so many people out there. I would bet lots of you have it on your phone. You utilize it. Richard Pearson, he's the co-founder and the CEO of that app, and they are having, not surprisingly, quite a moment. I think that this situation has brought to the surface a lot of the mental health issues that I think were maybe sitting under the surface that maybe were unaddressed. And I think when you are forced into a situation where you, it's much harder to you know, partake in all the normal distractions that we that we that we kind of do as human beings. I think it brings these things and makes them kind of more acute. And so, I think for the first time in a long time, we are actually looking at the state of our mind. And you know, for some of us, it's incredibly challenging. Um, so, I think the you know things that we're hearing from folks is a few things. I think one, I'm not sure that mental health was uh, a topic that was being discussed in every single boardroom. Um, I think it's being discussed in every single boardroom now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're definitely seeing, um, you know, and we've seen that we've had like up to 400 percent 
increase in terms of uh, enterprise inquiries for our kind of B2B offering. So we're definitely seeing um, an increase there. Um, we, I think the other piece that's come, you know, that comes to us is a lot around parenting and kids at home. I think people are really struggling with how do they balance uh, work life and, and kind of raising children at home is a really, really tricky thing for folks. And they're like two big things that are definitely coming towards us as we're seeing this crisis unfold. Totally agree. I feel like it's another one of those situations where we know this stuff's out there and yet it's not until we have a crisis do people like, wow, yes. this is a problem. One thing I want to get to, Rich, I have a sister who's worked in the mental health profession for years and has just talked yeah. about how it's taken even the medical community and even like health insurance a long time to respect that mental health and, and a healthy mental health is as important as, a, you know, your physical and medical well-being. Um, yes. Are we seeing that change significantly will something like COVID-19 help even move the needle on that one even more yeah I absolutely think it's accelerated our kind of belief that we've had that you know we've always believed that mental health is the kind of um you know is inextricably linked from physical health and I think even if you look at all the research mm-hmm. around stress-related chronic diseases that you cannot separate out the two it's, it really is kind of whole person health not just physical health so I think we're definitely going to see an acceleration towards people understanding that looking after the health of your mind, we believe is actually the most precious resource. Um, and we think of it as your hard drive. You know, if, if your mind is not healthy, how can you actually make healthy choices, the things that you eat, the exercise you take, the relationships that you have, how you sleep? It really is the core component of living a, a healthy and balanced life. Um, and I think it's been able to be pushed to the on the back burner and some people have been open to it and obviously some people are way out in front when I think of certain organizations and healthcare systems but I think this crisis has made it top of everyone's agenda um, because everyone's dealing with it in real time right. um, so I, I absolutely believe that this is going to shift the whole conversation and this next wave of um, of kind of looking for ways that we can support people with their mental health because we cannot train enough Doctors, you know, you mentioned your sister. We cannot train enough people one on one. Like we're going to have to think of scalable ways that we can we can solve these issues. As That's where I think platforms like so, yeah, like, like well, yours the- are, are like play right to that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you gave us a a perfect bridge to to talk about Headspace. I mean, when you think about folks who who were ahead of it and and out there, I mean, you and Andy founded this uh, Andy Puttycomb, whose uh, voice has been in my head many, many, (laughs) many, many times, uh, founded this in 2010. You were out ahead of this. What have you learned, especially that you're applying now uh, over those years, over those 10 years or so, uh, that that might be useful to, to folks? listening right now yeah i think one of the things is you know where to, for folks to ask themselves the question of you know where do they prioritize their mental health like what do they actually do for their mind hmm. um you know we spend a lot of time looking after our physical appearance and other things in life but how much time do we actually spend looking after our most precious resource i think that's an interesting question for all of us to ask um and then you know i, I would be i would be biased but i do think that, um, you know, a mindfulness practice, however you apply that, whether that's with a seated meditation practice, whether that's applying it to the way that you run, whether that's applying it to the way that you eat, um, I think there's so many different ways that you can apply mindfulness in your life. And the biggest benefit of that is it gives you 
a different relationship with your thoughts and your emotions. And if we think about stress, most of our stress is caused by our thoughts and our emotions. And it's not to say that thoughts and emotions are necessarily bad, but if we can practice a, a technique like meditation or mindfulness, we can actually create some distance between those thoughts and those emotions and therefore not get so swept up in them as, as they, they occur. And I think that that process is... Um, is the, one of the most valuable things that you can do for your ongoing mental health. And to not to look at it as I think so many people think about it, right? I get really, really stressed and then I do a little exercise and I won't feel so stressed, more like an aspirin. Um, but if we can actually think about it as, as a kind of a vitamin or vitamin, as you, as you say in America, um, <laughs> that we can get to prevention, you know? Um, yeah. We could think about doing this. Right. You know, if you go to the gym once, you're not going to get fit. Our guest at this hour is Rich Pearson, co-founder and chief executive officer of Headspace, joining us on the phone from Santa Monica. You know, it's funny. I can't even tell you, Rich, the conversation that was going with our team here at Bloomberg Business Week, our tech technical staff, our producer staff were like, are you on this app? Are you on this app? There's a lot of apps out there. And I think that alone can be stressful and overwhelming about like kind of <laughs> figuring how do you create a meditation practice, you know? That's calming, and you don't feel overwhelmed, like, i got to do this, i got to do this. What would you suggest to somebody who's feeling stressed out? How should they approach it? I think the worst thing that can happen to anyone trying to build a meditation practice is to feel like another thing on your to-do list that you never get to, right. which I think for a lot of people it kind of feels like that. <laughs> and so I, I really think, like with any habit, you should start off little and often. Um, and I think even if you just commit, to a few times a week, as little as three minutes and build up from there. You know, I always think it's like the good analogy is like the a marathon. If you've never run before, you wouldn't go and run a marathon like as your first running experience. And I think you've got to think about that in the same way with meditation. Um, I think another really good tip is to, um, to attach it to a habit that you already have. So maybe you want to do it just before you go to bed or maybe you want to do it after you have your morning coffee or before you have your shower but trying to attach it to the habit that you already have because it's much easier to kind of couple it um, in, in that way. And also just not to put too much pressure on yourself. I think the real, the big misconception, and this is probably the biggest thing that I could say to anyone, is that meditation is not about stopping your thoughts um, and it's not about having a calm and relaxed um, kind of benefit from it. That may be a side effect of the practice, but I think so many people go in with that expectation. Um, but I promise you, if we could have learned how to stop our thoughts, we'd have done it by ourselves a long time ago. Right. And so it really is a process of having a different relationship with your thoughts. It's not about stopping them. And because people have those pre-perceptions um, about what it is, when that doesn't happen, they give up and they say it's stressful and it doesn't work. Um, right. So that would be the biggest thing that I could say to anyone. It's not about stopping thoughts and it's not about feeling relaxed and calm. That may happen, but that's not what you should go into it with. And so, Rich, you know, one of the interesting things that's happened of late, and maybe it's in part because of the crisis, as Carol pointed out earlier in the conversation, uh, and maybe it's part of the work that you and others have been doing, and I, I believe that to be true, the idea of meditation has come much deeper uh, into the mainstream, and it feels like it has allowed you guys as a business, ultimately we are Bloomberg here, uh, to really yep. expand some partnerships and maybe uh, set up some relationships with people who otherwise, I mean, talking about governments and, and other folks who maybe 10 or 15 years ago would be like, okay, thanks a lot, weirdos, but we got this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, tell us about some of the, some of the stuff you're doing. 
Yeah, well, people always responded to us like that um, in the early days, I can assure you. They definitely thought we were strange when we talked about this idea. But, yeah, that's definitely shifted. Um, I think the fact that, you know, Governor Cuomo rang us up, that Michigan rang us up, um, and I think the reason that 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 happened and we partnered with New York and and Michigan and we've got some more coming down the pipeline as well, some other uh, big partnerships with government, um, is because of the science and the efficacy of it. Um, you know, we've been, we're the only um, mental health, um, digital mental health product out there with uh, the volume of research. We have over 65 papers um, currently in process, 20 of which have been published, proving that Headspace can reduce aggression, increase compassion, reduce stress, increase focus, reduce job burnout, you know, in in um, in, in kind of approved journals. And that's Headspace CEO Richard Pearson joining us from California. He is English, as is his co-founder. His co-founder, Andy Puttycomb, is a voice you and I have heard in our ears many, many times. So it was interesting to get his perspective. Also, the sort of mainstreaming of something that a few years ago was a little woo-woo, let's be honest. <laughs> a little woo-woo. Well, what's interesting too, and I, I, what really I took away from it, the reminder that meditation, you know, it's not about being relaxed or being calm. It's not about stopping your thoughts. It's about having a different relationship with your thoughts, which I think at this time, at this crisis, is something that a lot of people really need and could help them out. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for joining us. Stay safe, everyone. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio, live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast wherever you download your podcasts. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just go there and search for Bloomberg Global News. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.